Take a step for every dinner you didn't eat together at the table this week. If either of you would say that work hours or work stress can be a barrier to enjoying time in marriage, take four steps forward. If you feel like your marriage has fallen into a bit of a rut, the cell phone is a distraction in your relationship. Did you go to bed at different times any night this week? Feel like life has gotten hectic and a bit overwhelming? Do either of you take your cell phone to bed at night? Did you go on an intentional scheduled date this week? Life is managing you more than you're managing your own life. Okay, you can both turn around. You see the distance of what one word comes to your mind. Alone, because we're really separated, really far apart. Sad. Sad? Why is that? Life. A uh, challenge. All right, let's get closer, whatever we got to do. Sad, because I want to be close to him. Doesn't seem like we would be, like the distance would be there, but. Look like a tunnel. A long tunnel seems so far away and so small. You really don't think about how far apart you are with all of the things that life throws at you until you quantify it in a moment like this. Would either of you like to get together and put together a strategy so that cell phones are not a distraction in a relationship at all? Take two steps forward. Would either of you like to put together a vision for your marriage and get on the same page and work toward it? Would either of you like to grow in both praying together and praying for each other? Would either of you like a better atmosphere in the home that's full of grace and peace? Would either of you like to learn to say no to some things so that you can be together as a family more often? My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. My wife Kim is sitting right over here. Uh, Kim and I got married at the age of 20 on August 10th, 1991. On August 11th, 1991, we were awakened by this thing called a clock radio. Some of you will remember what that was. It was an alarm clock, but instead of a buzzer, you would get your favorite tunes turned on, or at least theoretically, that's the way it would work. And on the morning of August 11th, 1991, less than 18 hours after we were married, our clock radio went off, and I promise this is a true story. The very, thing, the very first thing we heard on the very first day we awoke in the same bed was some guy reading the news, saying, a new study shows that 50% of all marriages end in divorce within the first five years. <laughs> we laughed too because there was no way it applied to us. There was no way we were ever going to get divorced, because we were just too in love. 
14 months later, on August 14, 1992, we became parents for the first time to Shelby. And on March 31, 1994, we became parents for the second, third, and fourth time to triplet girls, Abby, Christy, and Kylie. To say that the first few years of our marriage were eventful would be a huge understatement. Kim had graduated from college before we got married, but I was the guy who kept changing his major, so I was still a full-time student who didn't graduate until May of 1994. Now, if you're doing the math in your head, you didn't miscalculate. What that means is that we became the parents of four daughters before I ever graduated from college. That was an incredible stressor on our marriage. Instead of working to financially support our family, I spent most of the first three years of our marriage studying somewhere alone. Now, obviously, there were two pregnancies in there, so we did a little more than just study, but not much more. So as we were accumulating uh, these babies, we were also sinking into the abyss of debt. And not only that, but I was a straight-A student, and I found that uh, studying at home with a baby was not conducive to really studying, and I wasn't willing to compromise my standards, and so most of my time was spent away from home, studying someplace quiet and leaving my wife to kind of figure things out on her own. Those were tough years. They were damaging years. So damaging, in fact, that I have a vivid memory of sitting in our van in the parking lot of the old Rock Prairie after our evening small group in the summer of 1995. I had graduated, finally I was working full-time, finally, but we were in terrible debt, which meant me working a lot of overtime every hour I could get, which means that the majority of time I was still absent from our home. And Kim and I honestly were both miserable. We were two 24-year-old kids with a mountain of debt, four kids that we really had no idea how to raise, we were stressed, we were at odds, we were broke, we hadn't been intimate in quite some time, and our marriage was barely hanging on by a thread. I definitely had not met her needs as a husband, neither had she met my needs in the ways that I had envisioned she would, and we were sitting in the church parking lot having a really tough discussion, pointing out each other's failures and how we had let each other down, when a friend of ours knocked on the window of the van and climbed in the back seat and said, you two are in trouble and you need to get help. And he went inside the church because there were no cell phones in the old days. He went inside the church and called our pastor, Kim Drake, on the phone with a cord and arranged for us to meet later that week for counseling. And although we didn't realize it at the time, that's one of the most pivotal moments in our marriage because if we hadn't gotten help then, I'm almost positive we would have been divorced. Now, fast forward 25 years to 2020, a global pandemic hits. Kim and I are stuck at home alone, just the two of us, for weeks on end. And there's nobody that we would have rather been quarantined with than each other. So how do we get from that sad state of affairs we found ourselves in in 1995 to the blessedness of, a mar of marriage that we experienced in 2020? And that's what I'd like to talk with you all about today. I'd like to talk about this unique relationship that we call marriage. Everybody ready? Marriage is a relationship unlike any other. 
It's a relationship created by God for the purpose of revealing his nature. Despite what culture might tell us, marriage is not man's idea, nor is it in its truest form anything that mankind could ever dream up. Marriage is a heavenly concept with divine implications. Marriage was so important, in fact, that God couldn't even get through Genesis chapter 1 without introducing it to us. Right in the very beginning of the Bible, just 26 verses in and barely six days into history, God unveiled this masterpiece. Then in chapter 2, he gives us a more detailed picture of how he brought the first lady into the first man's life. And in those passages, right in the opening pages of our Bible, God paints this beautiful picture of marriage and his purpose for it. But sadly, for the most part, I think most of us as humans miss the whole point. I think if we were to set up a little table out in the Connection Center, and as we filed out, ask everybody the question, what's the purpose of marriage? I suspect we would get answers kind of like these. Uh, it's the, the purpose of marriage is for two people to have lifelong companionship. Or marriage is primarily for the building of healthy, stable families and raising children. Or marriage is because two people working together can accomplish more than two people working separately. Or marriage is to provide uh, faithfulness and sexual fidelity. And the truth is that while all those things could be classified as major benefits of marriage, and while we could see those things in those passages that we just read, none of them capture the real heart of God, the real purpose of marriage. Actually, we haven't read them yet, but we're going to. And just to take this a step further, what kinds of responses do you think we'd get if we took that same table up and just set it up on the courthouse square and just asked random people coming by, what's the purpose of marriage? I don't think I want to know what they would say, do you? So what is it exactly? This is so important because to marry and to miss it is to enter into a life of frustration and disappointment just like what we were experiencing back in 1995. Most of us have these romanticized ideas of what marriage is going to be. We dream of this relationship that's finally going to meet all of our romantic and emotional needs. We want marriage to be all about us. However, God's primary intention for marriage is not meeting our physical and emotional needs. I'm going to say that again just to let it sink in a little bit. God's primary intention for marriage is not meeting the physical and emotional needs of the husband and wife. Put it up on the screen just so we don't miss it. Now that's not to say that God can't use marriage to our physical and emotional benefit. He can and he does. But if we believe having our physical and emotional needs met are the primary purposes for marriage, we are going to live lives of chronic frustration and chronic disappointment. Because God is the center of the universe, not man. Therefore, to understand God's primary purpose in marriage, we have to understand God's primary purpose in everything, which is what? To glorify God. Psalm 100, verses 2 and 3 says this, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
1 Corinthians 6.20 says that you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. These passages and many others just like them point us to this truth. God created everything, including marriage, to glorify himself, not to meet any specific human needs. The primary purpose of marriage is to glorify God. So how then does this work exactly? How is it that God's primary purpose for marriage is to glorify himself, yet in a healthy marriage, both husband and wife reap the benefits that we just mentioned? And to understand this, we have to go back to those passages that we already mentioned in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And let's start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us, the Trinity, make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is that man was made in God's image. And here, in part, is what I think that means. First, man has the ability to think and to reason, reflecting God's ability to think and reason. Second, man has a built-in sense of right and wrong and fairness, a moral compass, if you want to call it that, which is a reflection of God's righteousness. And thirdly, man has the ability to exist in relationship, reflecting God's eternal existence in relationship with the Trinity. And that's not an exhaustive list by any means of what it means to be created in God's image, but it gives us some starting point. These three things are enough for us to begin to understand what that means. And here's why this is important. Look what comes next in verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, man was designed to glorify God by ruling the earth as representative of God. Man exists to represent God in creation. In other words, by looking to the example of man, all creation should be able to better understand what God is like. God is therefore glorified by man reflecting his image in creation. But look what comes next in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So something profound has just changed. I think we need to, this is so profound that we need to go ahead and skip up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 18, and then we're going to skip to verse 21. So Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, now let me ask you a question. In chapter 1, verse 27, uh, God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. In chapter 2, we get this detailed description of how God introduced the helper into the man's life. And we've also seen in these two short passages that by looking to the example of man, all creation should be able to better understand what God is like. So, who specifically should the world look to to best understand what God is like? More pointedly, who more closely resembles the image of God, the man or the woman? They're not the same, though, are they? Despite the garbage that our culture says today, males and females are not the same. We're quite different. Right off the bat, uh, we weren't even created in the same way. Man was created from dirt. Woman was created from the rib of Adam. So we're obviously physically different, but we're also different in those three other areas that we just talked about. For example, how we reason and process information. Husbands and wives, does your spouse process information exactly the same way you do? Or does one of you tend to be a bit more logical and calculating in your decision-making while the other makes decisions a bit more on intuition and feeling? I'm being careful. (laughs) I'm not suggesting which is which. That either gender always possesses or processes information in the same way because it's not the same in every marriage, but it's also not the same in males and females, is it? It's not the same. How about in areas of conscience or moral compass? In your marriage, do you both approach matters of right and wrong exactly the same way? For example, if one of your children were to misbehave, does one of you tend more towards justice and discipline? and the other more towards grace and leniency. If I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, I'd bet that's true in most of our marriages. Or how about relationships? Do you both conduct relationships exactly the same way? Or does one of you maintain relationships more by communication and sharing feelings, whereas the other maintains relationships more by action steps, like doing things with and for other people? not the same, is it? Males and females are not the same. So then back to my question, since we're not the same, which gender, male or female, more closely resembles the image of God? Who should we look to to understand what God is like? You all know the answer, right? Neither gender more closely resembles the image of God. They just reflect different aspects of God's image. Male and female are equally created in the image of God, reflecting different aspects of his character. So we went through all that to get to this point. From the earliest points in creation, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, day 6 of creation, it was always God's design for the clearest representation of his image to be revealed in a marriage relationship with one man and one woman joined together in a lifelong, one-flesh relationship seeking to glorify God together. This was God's plan. That two people, 
one of each gender created with different complementary character traits, yet equally created in the image of God, would come together to glorify God by serving one another, their lives and personalities becoming so intertwined that their relationship could only be described as one flesh. This new creation, this one flesh relationship, would then exert godly influence over the earth, revealing what God's character is like by the way they interacted with one another and together ruled. This one flesh relationship would also reproduce and multiply God's influence by building and nurturing a whole family of God followers to carry on that legacy. God would be glorified as together they reflected his image in creation. The primary purpose of marriage was not for the man and the woman to fulfill each other's deepest needs. It wasn't to meet their needs for companionship or to promote sexual fidelity or for the production of a healthy, stable family or so that the two could accomplish more together than they could separately. It was always to glorify God. But the irony of all ironies is that by pursuing the primary purpose of marriage, by seeking to glorify God, the end result would be all of those other things as side effects. Companionship. Because God has eternally existed in relationship. And by existing in the, the harmonious relationship, which he designed for us, we are reflecting God's image. We're glorifying God. Sexual fidelity. Because God is faithful. And we glorify God by reflecting his image and our faithfulness to our spouse. Stable, healthy children, because we glorify God by obeying his command that we be fruitful and multiply his image. Not just by having children, but also by raising them to know him and follow him. And the accomplishment of more of God's work together than they could accomplish separately because God is glorified as the two genders blend different aspects of God's character into this one flesh relationship as they seek to build a life together and revealing God's image more clearly to the rest of creation. My friends, God's plan for marriage to glorify him by reflecting his image is a beautiful plan. All of creation should be better able to understand what God is like by the way our marriages reflect his image. The problem is, all that we've talked about until now was in the context of pre-fall of man, right? Soon after these passages in Genesis that we've been studying, uh, Eve would eat from the tree, give the fruit to Adam, who would also eat, and immediately Adam would begin playing the blame game. God, this woman who you gave me, she made me do it. The course of all history was changed. People changed. They became sinful. Relationships changed because people became self-centered. Marriage changed because sinful, self-centered people have a hard time being nice to each other, let alone reflecting the image of God. The whole world changed. So we're all doomed. Marriage is bound to fail. Is that right? We know that's not true, right? But marriage in the post-fall world is hard. Because in the post-fall world, marriage is now made up of imperfect people. People with fears and faults and failures and sinful tendencies. 
people who come into marriage with deep scars from things that happened before they got in that relationship, people who quite honestly are broken and aren't really worthy of being loved by the other one. Listen, this is where Kim and I found ourselves in 1995. We were two very broken people, very immature, both bringing our own baggage into this thing we call marriage, both selfish, deeply sinful, and each resentful that the other one was not meeting our needs the way we envisioned they would. Neither of us was really worthy of being loved and respected by the other. On August 11th, 1991, we laughed when that radio guy said 50% of all marriages end in divorce. We laughed because we were just too in love for that to be true of us. But here we were just four years later, sitting in the church parking lot wondering if it was really worth it. If this is what it's going to be like, I'm not even sure it's worth it. Any other married couples here today been where we were? Anyone there now? If I were a betting man, I guess there's somebody here today that's where we were. So let me share with you what saved our marriage. It didn't happen overnight. In fact, it's taken us years of effort. We're still learning, but it's been so worth the struggle. What saved our marriage is that we had to recognize the very facts that I've just been talking about. We had to come to the point of understanding that neither of us was really worthy of being loved by the other one. Neither of us was capable of being the fulfillment of the other one. We were just too broken, too selfish, and too sinful. And that's exactly why marriage is this a beautiful little picture of the gospel. In marriage, we get to bring two broken, sinful people together and put grace on display by becoming a new one-flesh creation. Not because either one of us is deserving or worthy, but just because we choose to. And in so doing, we reveal to the world what God is like. You see, God loved us, selfish, broken sinners, so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to get cleaned up for him to die for us. He died for us while we were yet sinners. He died because the wages of sin is death. But that wasn't what he wanted for his creation. He loved us so much that he wanted us to have life and have it abundantly. So he gave himself freely for our benefit. He sent the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand that there is none righteous? No, not one. None of us has ever done anything to deserve that free gift of God. And on the other hand... Jesus didn't deserve to go to the cross. He hadn't done anything to earn the wage of death. He had no sin, but he chose to go to the cross anyway to redeem us and make us new creations in him. And in marriage, we have the privilege of living out that gospel. Just as Christ joined us to himself, making us new creations, we have the privilege of joining together with our spouse and having this new one flesh relationship. Just as Christ showed us grace, undeserved favor, we have the privilege in marriage of showing daily grace to our spouse, not holding their failures against them. Just as Christ gave himself up for his bride, the church, we have the privilege of giving ourselves up, giving our lives to serve 
our spouses. Because of what Christ has done for us, we get the opportunity not to demand anything of our spouses, but just to serve them. And then trust that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely meet our needs? We don't have to demand anything of our spouses because God's grace is sufficient. No longer do we have to look to our spouse to be our fulfillment. They can be released from the impossible task of trying to be our savior, trying to fix all of our brokenness and fill all of our emptiness. That's God's job. And by releasing our spouse from that responsibility, we're free to just enjoy each other as co-heirs of God's grace. We're free to wake up every day next to our best friend, to come home every night and discuss life and celebrate the successes and mourn the failures. We're free to fail without worrying that the other person is going to desert us. We're free to enjoy the pleasures of sex, the ups and downs of raising kids, the joys of grandkids, and most importantly, we're free to serve the king of all creation together. By seeking to glorify God first, by seeking first his kingdom, all those things will be added unto us. You know, on the day Satan convinced Adam and Eve to eat from that tree, I'm sure he thought that he had ruined marriage forever. But it's almost like God designed marriage to reveal what he's like even more in the post-fall world. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. Marriage is not easy. In fact, at times, it's a difficult struggle. But I can stand here this morning with full conviction and say it's a struggle that's worth it. There were times when we would not have been able to say this. But Kim and I are truly best of friends because of God's grace. We still have bad days. We still struggle against the flesh. But we've learned to take it to God and move forward and not get stuck in those ruts. Because God is trustworthy. He's shown each of us incredible grace. And we have no right not to show that same grace to each other. And here's why all this is so important. The world is watching us. Our kids are watching us. And they're so disillusioned with marriage. It's pretty much the norm in today's world for young people to just live together rather than get married. Marriage is viewed as an outdated concept. It's de described as the old ball and chain. And when we hear of somebody that just got engaged, what do we say to them? Don't do it. Your life's about to come to an end. Why do we say stuff like that about God's gift of marriage? And that's not all. When Kim was still working in OB, she would almost be shocked when the parents of a newborn were married. Our culture has separated sex from marriage. They don't go together anymore. And now the world is even trying to redefine marriage so that two men or two women can be involved. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. That's not, God's, that's not what God had in mind when he designed marriage. And many in our world today are espousing the idea that a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man just based on how they feel, denying entirely the idea that God created gender with a purpose. It was part of his plan. But here's the kicker. Why do you suppose 
The world is so confused about gender and, and gender roles in marriage. Why are they so disillusioned with marriage in general? Why would there ever be the notion that sex should be separated from marriage or that marriage can be reduced to something that includes homosexuality? You want to know why? It's because the followers of Christ have all too often done marriage very poorly. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. A one flesh relationship between one man and one woman in which the spouses show unconditional love and grace to one another and display lifelong faithfulness to one another, just like God shows to us. Marriage is supposed to be the nurturing ground in which children are born and family is built and God's kingdom is grown. People, including our very own kids, when observing a marriage between two Christian people, should better understand what God is like by watching the way they interact with each other and the world around them. In marriage, God should be glorified. The spouses should be edified. Children should be lovingly raised to know God and to repeat the process. And anyone on the outside should be able to observe that relationship and that family and understand more of what God is like. But did you know that marriages between Christians end in divorce at approximately the same rate as those of non-Christians? And of the marriages between Christians that survive, many are doing exactly that. They're surviving and not thriving. At Rock Prairie, we're constantly saying that we want to make Christ known from our neighbors to the nations. But we can't say that and mean it while at the same time not glorifying God in our marriages. We can't even expect our own children to want to follow God if what our marriage is showing them doesn't look anything different than the non-Christian marriages that they observe. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Why would we expect our children or our neighbors to be attracted to the gospel if our marriage doesn't look that enjoyable? On the other hand, it's my firm belief, based on the Word of God, that God can and will use examples of marriages lived out for Him to draw our kids to Himself, to draw our neighbors to Himself. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that if we're serious about reaching our neighbors, strong marriage has to be a key part of our discipleship strategy. We have to show those around us what God is like that he loves us so much that he gave himself for us, that he enjoys spending time with us. He's faithful to the end. He's full of grace. He's patient with us. He encourages us. And he always wants us to grow. Doesn't that sound great? Can't you just imagine the impact on our children and our neighbors if they saw marriages like that lived out in front of them? Set that aside for a minute. Can't you just imagine the enjoyment and fulfillment that you could personally experience in a marriage like that. So can we commit to being a congregation that says we're willing to be lifelong learners who apply what it means to reflect God's image in our marriages? I've counseled a lot of couples in crisis over the last 16 years. And none of them ever showed up in my office and said, we planned this, we planned to wreck our marriage. By and large, what they said were things like, we didn't think this would happen to us. We were so in love, we used to have so much fun together, but then we grew apart. Or we got busy with life and we just kind of lost track of each other. 
Nearly always that's the case. Marriage just gets lost due to couples not proactively investing in that relationship. So as we prepare to close, I want to talk to the married couples here today about an incredible opportunity we have here at Rock Prairie to proactively invest in our marriages. Whether you're newly married or you've been married 50 years, it doesn't matter. We need everybody to be a part of this. I know a lot of people would say, we've been married a long time and things are going great in our relationship and we really don't need this. But that's not true. The groups need you. If that's true, if you're really, maybe you've been married a long time and you're doing great, the groups need you to be a part of them, to be uh, mentors, okay? I sincerely mean that. Even if you're not married, but you have a heart to see the marriages of others thrive, there's a place for you in this ministry. Something that has weighed on Kim's and my heart for a long time is that at Rock Prairie, we haven't traditionally done anything consistent, proactive for marriage. We've done an occasional short sermon series. Uh, We've taken money and invested so that we could all go to conferences. And those things are, are beneficial. They're good. But we haven't done anything consistent and ongoing for marriage, and we believe that's wrong. As I said at the beginning of this, we, we can't even get through Genesis chapter 1. This marriage is so foundational. God introduced it in verse 26 of Genesis 1. Strong marriages lead to strong families, which lead to strong churches, which lead to strong communities, right? Yet at Rock Prairie, aside from premarital counseling, we haven't traditionally offered any kind of preventive maintenance for marriage. And by not offering that, what we're silently communicating is come back when you're in crisis. Right? Come see us when you're in crisis. But statistics tell us that by the time most couples come into their pastor to say we're in crisis, they've already been unhappy for six years. And it's really hard to undo six years worth of damage. Often couples by that point are so wounded that it doesn't matter how biblical the counsel they receive, they're going to divorce anyway. Back in April, Mike and I and Craig had the opportunity to attend the D6 conference, and I attended a breakout session there put on by a man named Brad Rhodes, who was the guy talking in that video. Brad's an attorney, and he shared with us that courtroom litigation was really his bread and butter. It's what he loved to do. In fact, at any one time, he was litigating over 200 cases. But there was, he also owned his own practice. And and in spite of being incredibly busy and bringing in a lot of revenue, his business was not thriving. So he hired this consulting firm who one day every quarter would come and take him away from the office and take him to a hotel conference room. And they would spend a day, one day every quarter, focusing on what what are the goals? Where are we? Where are we trying to go? What's our plan to get there? Just one day each quarter to focus on goals and strategy turned his business around in a very short amount of time. So then he started thinking, why wouldn't this work for marriage? Because in marriage, uh, we all have jobs and we have kids that have homework to do, that have sports practices to get to, uh, they have meals that need prepared, we have leaking faucets, we have cars that need oil changes, the water softener needs salt put in it, and a thousand other things. And in balancing all of those things, we can easily lose sight of our most important role in life, which is to minister to our one flesh partner in life. And so from that thought, grace marriage was born. 
Grace marriage involves couples attending one four to six hour session four Saturdays a year, once each quarter. Just one four to six hour session on a Saturday each quarter. And those who sign up will be in a group with your spouse as well as, well as approximately 10 other couples and one facilitator couple who will kind of guide the, the participants through the day's material. This isn't a typical small group kind of setting. You will have some interaction with the other couples, uh, but grace marriage is primarily designed so that p- spouses will have personal time together throughout the day to work on specific assigned goals. And the reason for this is that grace marriage is primarily about spending time with your spouse, not about being with close friends. The main purpose of the sessions is to focus on what are your hopes, dreams, and goals, and how are we going to get there. Back in May, Kim and I, as well as David and Stacy Nichols, had a chance to attend a grace marriage session in Indianapolis, and all of us came away feeling grateful for the opportunity and believing that this was a ministry that we needed to bring to Tipton. We needed it at Rock Prairie. We need it as preventive maintenance for our marriages so that none of us end up being that couple that waits six years and has a lot of damage that needs undone. We need it because we want to make, more than anything, we want to make Christ known to our neighbors and to our children, our closest neighbors. We want them to see God glorified in our marriages and be attracted to the gospel. And again, I want to stress, this is just one four to six hour session each quarter. We're not asking you to attend a small group every Monday night for the next 12 years, okay? It's a, it's a small investment four times a year. It's attainable, and I wholeheartedly believe it's going to reap amazing rewards for our families, for our church, and for our community. If you've got friends that don't attend Rock Prairie, we have some friends that don't attend here that are going to be a part of this. It's bigger than just Rock Prairie. Half a Saturday, four times a year is a small investment to reap incredible benefits in our marriages. If you're one of those couples, again, who's been married a long time and thinking this, that we don't need this, we need you, okay? We need you. As soon as this service ends, Kim and I are going to be out in the Connection Center at the Grace Marriage Table. We'll have sign-ups there. You can also sign up on the website. Um, we'll be happy to answer any questions you might have. We're excited about this ministry. It's, it's, it's something we're really looking forward to, something that we hope every married couple here will take advantage of. Couldn't be more excited about it. So thanks so much for being here this morning. The worship team is going to come now, and Kim and I will meet you out at the table in just a little bit.